flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey, Flatlanders, happy Friday. This is Megan, and we're popping into your feed today as scheduled, but this is kind of a bonus episode. In April, Laura, Tana, and Lindsay got to go on an incredible adventure to Neosho County for spring turkey season. And spoiler alert, someone may have gotten their first turkey, which is pretty incredible. We even got sound of it happening. So this episode is a little bit different. We had two different interviews recorded at two separate times, but they both intertwine with each other. And there's natural sound, there's wind. It's a little bit different, but we know you guys will love it. So enjoy. Hey, Flatlanders, it's me, Laura Mendenhall. We are coming at you from Neosho County in the Osage Coistas. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Tana. We're so excited to be with you today to follow up a little bit on our turkey conversation that we recently had with Kent Fricky. Um, so this is kind of a fun little bonus episode. We are literally in the field, out doing cool outdoor stuff. We're recording on our host uh, kitchen table right before we go out to set up camp for the night to get up early and go on our turkey hunt. And we just ate morel mushrooms. We're gonna go look for more. And then yeah, we're gonna hunt turkeys tomorrow. <laughs> Pretty excited. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have a special guest with us here today, um, Rick Hines, who is born and raised in Neosho County. He is an attorney. He is on the Kansas Wildlife Federation board. He's also on the Nature Conservancy board. He and his wife have visited all seven continents, um, and he is has been gracious enough to host us, and he is going to uh, let us hunt on his land tomorrow. So, Rick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, and I doubly appreciate Lindsay making morels for us today. That's probably <laughs> the most delicious thing I've had in many, many years. So. I'm so glad you enjoyed them. No, they were great and Good. didn't even know they were around, so. Yeah, well, those I actually brought from Manhattan, Kansas, but hopefully we find some and we will definitely be hiding them in your fridge if we do, so. Yeah. Well, they won't stay hidden very long. Good. <laughs> they won't be hard to find in there either. <laughs> so I wonder if we should start with, so we're in the Osage Cuestas, which is a special ecoregion in Kansas. We're in Neosho County. I wonder if we could start with just kind of describing the landscape and what you see out here, because it is quite a bit different from the Flint Hills and what you see in Western Kansas. So what are some of the main habitat types? Yeah, uh, uh, Laura, it, it definitely is different than what one project would project, I think, of uh, the Kansas landscape. We're, we like to say on occasions, we're kind of in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. That may be kind of a stretch, but it is a area that has quite a few trees, uh, which I think most people would find unusual for Kansas, and it is fairly hilly. Uh, we have uh, or receive approximately 40 inches of rainfall a year, so it's also a pretty green area. We generally do have uh, some drought conditions in August, but uh, not for a very long time period, so consequently we're 
I guess you could almost say kind of the verdant part of, of Kansas. So you want to get right down to it. Okay, so um, we should note for our listeners that <laughs> I love it when you do that. Emotion, <laughs> you do. I have strep throat, listeners, so that's why my voice is messed up. Um, but cuesta means cliff in Spanish. And so it doesn't seem super cliffy out here, but you describe there, there are some hills, and then there's a ton of hardwood, like woodlands and bottomland forest. I think I saw cottonwood, sycamore. What are some other trees? Pecans. Yeah, pecans pecans for sure. Uh, Actually, we have a lot of uh, pecan groves. Some of those are uh, actually pecan farms where they actually graft the trees. And then we have a lot of native pecan trees. The native pecans uh, are actually sold to confectionery companies uh, because they have a high oil content, high fat content because of their taste. So a lot of uh, the companies like uh, upper end companies uh, for confections, uh, candy, uh, actually purchase those from this area. Uh, and we have a lot of walnut trees too. So walnut trees are probably our uh, primary tree for commercial purposes. And certainly large walnut trees uh, can be bringing in a lot of money. Okay. Rick, you have such a beautiful, beautiful property, and we were lucky enough to go on a tour with you earlier today, which was an incredible time. We got to see so much. Um, But even here on your most local homestead where your house is built, um, you have some really incredible habitat going on. I wonder if you'd be interested in talking to our listeners a little bit more about some of your passions with the butterflies and what you've got going on close to your house. Sure, I'd I'd be glad to do that. Uh, As I kind of jokingly told you guys, I don't tell my criminal clients that my favorite hobby is butterfly gardening. That <laughs> doesn't seem a whole lot of or like a macho thing to do, but actually I started doing that uh, years ago. I was fortunate enough uh, when I was a kid to see a large migration of monarchs come through here. And uh, thereafter uh, uh, decided uh, a few years ago down to, to go down to the preserves in Mexico and see where they actually winter, which was a phenomenal thing to see. Uh, And unfortunately now there's becoming less and less monarchs. Uh, But at the time I went down, there were hundreds of millions of them concentrated in a a, uh, small area. It was like being in a blizzard of orange. I mean, uh, you can actually hear the beating of the butterfly wings, you know, I mean, in that area at that time. But anyway, I uh, got involved in that several years ago. And what I try to do on the property where we live is to incorporate not only plants that have ornamental value, but also have utility for butterflies. And uh, as I was showing you guys, we have uh, pawpaw trees for zebra swallowtails. Uh, actually, we saw a zebra swallowtail here today. You know, we did. Yeah. First yeah. time seeing one of those beauties. Yeah. That was amazing. It was so cool. And uh, we have tulip trees, which is the primary source in this area for the uh, eastern uh, tiger swallowtail. And again, my passion is with monarch butterflies, and I raise a lot of various species of milkweed. Uh, the tuberosa, which we used to call chiggerweed, or the, what they call now butterfly flower. Uh, I try to grow at least two or 300 of those a year from seed and then plot those. 
And then I do the same with uh, uh, Incarnata, which is the marsh uh, milkweed, and the Cursivaca, which is not native to here, but the butterflies, uh, again, the monarchs really like uh, uh, that. It's very palatable for, uh, for the caterpillars. Um, and then in addition with the eastern black swallowtail, we uh, try to plant uh, members of the carrot family, which would include dill and parsley and uh, uh, those family members in regard to it. So uh, hopefully we not only have ornamental flowers here, but things that uh, actually help uh, the various butterfly species. And this is something that uh, Flatlanders, if you'll remember, Steve Bender brought up in our very first episode, talking about the North American model for wildlife conservation. Um, Steve is with the National Wildlife Federation, and he brought up that monarch migration as well. So it's really exciting to be here with Rick and to see um, some of these practices to support butterflies really put into place and boots on the ground work. So we appreciate what you do. Well, I had the fortunate luck about seven or eight years ago that we had a uh, strong southerly wind and we had a field of sunflowers that were 360 acres of sunflowers and then a woodland right to the north of there and uh, we ended up with a local farmer calling me went down and I tried to do plots in regard to that field and we had probably someplace between a half million to a million monarch butterflies concentrated there and they actually did the curtain uh, effect of hanging from the trees, you know, I mean, here in southeast Kansas. Uh, uh, contacted Chip Taylor with the entomology department at KU that does Monarch Watch, and he indicated it was one of the largest concentrations of monarch butterflies that they had seen in the last 20 or 30 years in Kansas. So, and that happened right right here in Erie, Kansas. So. That's so cool. I uh, When I was a kid, we lived in Nebraska for a short stint. And there was this grove of elm trees in this back lot behind our house. And we walked out one, um, one day and there were thousands of monarch butterflies just weighing the, the tree limbs down mm. because it had been really cool that night before. So they were all gathering there for a short stint to um, carry themselves over through that cold weather. And they were just, the whole trees were coated in them. They were, with that many, they don't, I mean, individually, they don't weigh very much, but when you get so many of them together, they can weigh so much to break entire tree limbs. It was insane to see that many butterflies in one place. Right. So, Rick, not only do you help out the um, butterflies, but on the property tour that you gave us earlier, you were talking about um, creating better habitat for quail cubbies. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, there are CRP programs or uh, government programs where you can uh, plant uh, native species, forbs, also uh, native grasses. And uh, so consequently, we've been planting what I call, I guess, filter strips or, you know, buffer zones along the edges of the fields. Uh, uh, I have tenants at uh, farm, uh, the farmland I have, and of course the trees next to the edge of the field sap from from the crops anyway so they're willing uh, for me to go ahead and put in 50 to 75 feet you know of a buffer zone which would be again native grass and also uh, forbs uh, wildflowers uh, and so consequently that not only helps again about the butterflies but it also helps in regard to quail coverage and uh, we've had a a huge decline in the quail population in southeast Kansas in the last 10-15 years. I mean this used to be considered probably the prime area to go bobwhite 
hunting, you know, I mean, in the United States, and that's been substantially reduced. So we're trying to propagate uh, Bob White's back with these buffer zones. And I think to some extent, we're having some success for that happening, you know, now. Yeah, that's awesome. Forgot what I was gonna say. Maybe well, I think a, a lot of those conservation practices that you just talked about and the filter strips and the riparian buffers are having a positive impact or at least minimizing any negative impact on the Neosho which a lot of your land borders the Neosho River, which for our listeners is a really important waterway in this part of Kansas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the important species associated with the Neosho that you've maybe encountered. Well, uh, because uh, the Neosho uh, River cuts through and has woodland on both sides of it, in some areas it has huge oxbows, which cause uh, in some cases, eventually islands, which are, you know, sometimes four or five, 10 acres, uh, uh, which reverts back to woodland. And then uh, because it has the woodland on both sides of it, you're gonna have some species that would probably be unique to Kansas again. I mean, we certainly have uh, a increasing population of river otter here, which uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago were almost non-existent in Kansas. And uh, I do some kayaking and I've observed river otter uh, on the Neosho. Uh, we have a very large population of uh, bobcats and uh, I've had some uh, really great encounters, you know, I mean, with bobcats, you know, in the woods, you know, I mean, on it. I uh, one time thought I saw a mountain lion, but it turned out when it got out of the shadows, it was a bobcat. Uh, but uh, anyway, we do have mountain lion in this area, and we've had several uh, motion detector cameras, you know, that have picked up the mountain lions. Now, there's a big dispute on whether those are just uh, traveling, you know, through the area or we have a permanent population uh, because. As you know, pumas, you know, uh, travel uh, and migrate long distances in regard to it, but never seen one, but I've seen uh, several in regard to motion cameras that we have around here. Ever so often there's a reported black bear that's come up, you know, I mean, on the Neosho, you know, too, but that's probably even rarer than, than the mountain lions. We have a large population of beaver here. Mm. Uh, and I say large, I guess that's relative and Colorado would be considered, I guess, a small population. But uh, the, the good thing is we have a, a lot of beaver now. The bad thing is that a lot of farmers obviously don't appreciate the beaver. They actually dam up uh, uh, the small uh, riparian areas and they cause flooding on the crops, you know, et cetera, in regard to it. So uh, we have mink, we have quite a few members of the weasel family, you know, in this area. Uh, and again, those, those would probably be unique, you know, I mean, to, to, uh, to our area in comparison to much of Kansas. You also have some incredible muscle diversity in the Neosho, and you were kind of telling us about some of the species, the Neosho mucket, for example, which is federally listed and endangered. Um, what are some other muscle species that you've observed out on these gravel bars? Well, we did. A, I had the privilege of working with Ed Miller from Kansas Wildlife and Parks on a survey last year, and we just took about a quarter of a mile of the Neosho and went up it with uh, uh, with trying to identify the uh, the mussels. And uh, I think we ended up with 16 different species. Uh, and in that small area, we ended up with about 700 uh, live mussel. Uh, and uh, the predominant one was what they call the monkey face, which is uh, 
because of the the shape of uh, of course each one of these are have a common name you know kind of based upon their appearance but we had a lot of monkey face we had a lot of pistol grip which uh, is a species is named that because it's kind of oblong and it has a small part on the outer shell and then a larger and it looks kind of like a pistol or you can hold it kind of like you would be holding a pistol uh, we have three ridge uh, a lot of those uh, the maple leaf uh, uh, just you know a huge amount of diversity in regard to muscle you know so yeah that's cool i i personally love the whimsical names of all the muscles like pimple back, warty back, monkey face. Yeah, Rick had a pretty packed itinerary for us today, but I think he yeah. had a hard time dragging us away from the gravel bar this morning. Yeah, all I don't know shells. if that was a wise first stop. Some of us maybe lined our pockets with some cool rocks and shells and things. Yeah. Hey, there were fossils out there too. <laughs> well, and I appreciate you guys. I mean, the 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 basic uh, uh, life cycle of uh, muscles are so amazing, you know, and I think most people don't realize, you know, I mean, uh, the, the history of, 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 uh, of going through that, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, and uh, their, their symbiotic relationship, or I guess it's not symbiotic, I guess probably just to the benefit, you know, the muscles, but the relationship with fish and how they, you know, actually get their larvae to travel, you know, I mean, to various places is absolutely amazing. Okay, so let's give our listeners an overview of the complicated life cycle of these mussels. Yeah, so let's take the Neosho mucket as an example, since that one would have, had, would have existed along this stretch of river historically. And it has a particularly cool version of an anatomical feature that a lot of these mussels have. So it's springtime right now, which means Neosho muckets are spawning. The dad mussels are sending their sperm into the water column. And then the females will siphon in that water and they'll get the sperm that'll then fertilize their eggs that they'll brood for a couple of weeks in these special brood pouches. Right. And then the fully formed muscle larvae are called glochidia and the female uses a lure. Um, it looks in this lure, it looks very much like a fish lure that you could buy at a store. Um, it looks like a spotted fish. It even has eye spots on it and it kind of undulates in the water as she's flapping it around to attract this host fish, um, which is thought to be a, quite a few species of bass, like largemouth, smallmouth bass, and spotted bass. And the host fish lures in and the female shoots out all of these glochidia that attach onto the host fish gills. Right, and so then the glochidia ride along on the host fish, but mostly not to the detriment of the fish. Um, sometimes they can kind of cause, if, if there's like a lot of glochidia on the fish, it can cause problems, but mostly in laboratory settings. So the fish swims along happily upstream. And then when those glochidia have matured enough, they just drop off into the substrate as little teenager mussels. And from there, they grow and survive. So the, the host fish kind of acts like a dispersal mechanism for these otherwise sedentary mussels. I love that you describe them as teenage muscles. That is <laughs> so on point. Yeah. Um, you can learn more about how to identify muscles and why they're so imperiled in Kansas um, by referencing the Kansas Pocket Guide to Freshwater Muscles. And we'll post a link in the show notes to a video of that Neosho Mucket using her lure. It's super awesome. Be sure to watch it. Rick, you shared something really inter interesting with us as well. Um, in, in part, lending itself to the idea that mussels are in some ways an indicator species and they indicate the health of the river. 
Um, and so you talked about because of such the, the biodiversity in this area of the river, the city nearby has done such a good job maintaining its water quality and making sure that that cycle is a healthy one. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that was actually by concerted effort or just, you know, by luck in regard to it, but the actual uh, uh, lagoon system for the city of Erie actually dumps out uh, at the location where we did that survey. And uh, uh, the biologists that were there that did the survey indicated we must have an excellent uh, sewer system in relationship to it because uh, there would not be those mussels there and the huge numbers that we had, you know, if in fact there was any contamination. So apparently we're doing the right thing, at least, you know, in regard to uh, uh, taking care of uh, of our contamination, you know, or potential contamination because of uh, the lagoon systems that we have. So I'm actually happy to hear that. We have, uh, uh, unfortunately, in southeast Kansas, uh, it's a well-known area in regard to contamination. Uh, the farther south from here, but not that far of a distance, we actually have the area where we had the old lead and zinc mines. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough, I do a lot of uh, water law work and I work with a lot of rural water districts all over Eastern Kansas and public wholesale water supply districts. And I was uh, fortunate enough to represent uh, the water district who, uh, which was the first one in the United States that was funded by the EPA Superfund. Now, the unfortunate thing about that is the reason that it was, was because they had a huge uh, rate of intestinal cancer, you know, and, and uh, the population, uh, uh, well, there was a high death rate, I guess is the best way to put it. And so consequently it was used uh, for those purposes. But we have uh, a huge amount of lead and zinc mines in Southeast Kansas, a uh, large number of rock quarries, you know, in regard to the excavation of coal, et cetera. And so consequently we've had a lot of contamination and. Uh, the fact that we're actually seeing in our area, you know, some, I won't say pristine, but uh, obviously some indications, you know, that maybe we're avoiding some of the contamination problems that other places on the Neosho have. So. Yeah, that's really good to hear. So Rick, I wonder, you, you and your wife, Mary, have visited all seven continents and you guys are avid travelers. What makes this part of Kansas so special to you, sort of in comparison to everywhere else? Well, I guess because it's home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you always say it's great to visit other places, but there's no place like home. And I actually grew on a grew up on a farm south of Erie, Kansas. I was fortunate enough when I was a child, we had a local veterinarian here who was uh, uh, just a foremost expert in regard to wildflowers, in regard to uh, nature, and he let me read a lot of his books that he had in his library. You know, especially in regard to uh, uh, nature. And so consequently, uh, uh, I, at a very early age, you know, uh, grew up, you know, having a great love for nature. wanted to be a naturalist, you know, but uh, unfortunately you guys are, are practicing or doing what I would prefer to have been doing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, this, this is, again, you know, a nice area, southeast Kansas. Uh, there are some amazing, amazing places in the world, and it's great to visit them, uh, but uh, there's no place like home. So. I love that. Yeah. Wizard of Oz. Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, actually, coincidentally, my mother's named Dorothy. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> hey, Flatlanders, it's me, Laura. I'm Tana. Hey, it's Lindsay. So we are coming at you from Neosho County, Kansas, from the Osage Coises, where we just finished an amazing hunt. I got my first bird! <laughs> Lindsay got her first turkey. It was incredible, so we'll have to tell that story here in a little bit. But we are here with avid outdoorsman Brad Harris, who was born and raised in Neosho County, right? That's right. Okay. So um, we are going to ask a few questions of Brad and kind of talk about the landscape here and what he's seen and lifelong hunter. So he's got a, a lot of great stories. So Brad, tell us about yourself. I was born and raised here in Neosho County. Um, love it. Haven't left yet. So we uh, we farm and, and have for for. 40 plus years here and you guys met uh, one of our landowners yesterday and love it here. Can I ask you why you love it? Um, so I, I'm a huge outdoors person. I love to hunt and do that. I, I don't fish. I don't even have a fishing pole actually. Oh my gosh. Uh, we gotta fix that. <laughs> but I, I just, you know, I started driving a tractor when I was 13, um, before I even had a driver's license, you know, I was in the tractor farming, helping dad. And that's just, you know, it's kind of in your blood and that's what you do. It's what you enjoy. Yeah. So. That's awesome. So you farm, you hunt, you don't fish. Okay, we've established that. What all do you hunt down here? Uh, mainly deer and waterfowl. Uh, we do do some turkey hunting. You know, 20 years ago, our turkey hunting was probably some of the best in the country. Um, but our turkey population has definitely declined. Um, but it's still pretty good. It's better than most places, even with that. But it, uh, so, so deer, waterfowl, turkeys. Man, I'm just shocked that you don't have a fishing pole with as much time as you spend <laughs> on the water. No kidding. Or even like a bow fishing rig. Go down I, to the river. I have yeah. enough hobbies that I just, I don't need, <laughs> especially bow fishing, because I know I'd really like it. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just one of those things, like, I'm just not going to do it, so I don't have to worry about buying a boat and doing all this stuff. So we were fortunate enough to visit with Kent Fricky about turkeys not too long ago on our podcast, and, um. Just to clarify for everyone, Lindsay was able to take a beautiful eastern bird that we think is approximately three years old by your estimate, Brad? That's my guess. He's got a little over inch spurs. So I would say, you know, most of our two year old two year olds would have three quarter inch spurs or so. So mm -hmm. I'd definitely say he's at least three. Cool. Yeah. Beautiful long beard. He's huge. <laughs> what did you say the measurement was for his weight? Like a bag a of dog food? 40 pound bag of dog food. <laughs> <laughs> was my comparison. Yeah. How we measure things in the field. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get an official weight on that bird, though. Yeah, we um, need to before we cut him up. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, we'll have to figure out a way to do that here in the field. We're standing in a CRP field, uh, um, interestingly enough. <laughs> huddled around a truck, a truck bed. It doesn't get yeah. any more real than this. But it was an awesome morning. We So Lindsay shot this turkey by 8.30, I think. It wasn't even, it was like 8.05. Yeah. 8.05, and then we just ate at an amazing small town diner. And now we're back in the CRP field. Birds are calling. It's a gorgeous day in the Osage Coistas. Um, I keep saying that. <laughs> I want I people it. to know, like, this is the ecoregion. But so, Brad, earlier we were talking about turkey conservation, and you'd mentioned you and your family had done some special plantings to try and help with nesting can you talk us through that so so my thought is a lot of our farms have probably lacked nesting cover um just from over the years you know there's less and less native grasses so we went in on the places that are you know highly erodible uh or just spots that i thought would make good nesting areas and we planted you know switchgrass and blue, uh, big and little blue stem and some indian grass that sort of stuff to try and just encourage more nesting cover um and and it benefits everything 
you know, not just turkeys, but quail and, and all, all, the, all the birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what uh, Rick was telling us yesterday. He was he was starting to see more coveys because of planting, coveys of quail because of planting some of the filter strips yep. around the farm. Absolutely, and I, I, I would agree that we've seen a, a noticeable increase in quail with that. Still not what I would consider huntable numbers. Um, so turkey hunting and quail hunting is what I grew up doing. Uh, I would get home from school, and, and in the fall, if Dad was done with harvest, we'd get the Britneys, and we could go outside. We'd literally go out the back door, and we, you know, a couple hours, find four or five coveys, and, and have a great little evening. Wow. And that's just not the case anymore. You would have to hunt for two days to find five coveys. Um, but having, you know, farming this ground, we know, I know where most of the coveys are, so it wouldn't be hard to go find them. You just don't want to put that much pressure on them. So, Brad, you do something really interesting. Um, you tend to access your deer hunting spots on the property by boat. Do you want to talk about that at all? Because to me, that seems really unique. Yeah. Yeah, so as I've, I've I guess, started focusing on more, you know, killing the bigger, more mature deer, um, I wanted our river bottom specifically, it was hard to access tree stands without every deer seeing you. Um, and I just thought, you know, one day, like, why not use a boat? And, and so I moved all my tree stands closer to the river. Um, so there's less intrusion. So I literally can get right out of the boat, right into a tree stand. Uh, most of the deer are out feeding um, when I'm coming and going. Because typically I'll hunt all day, uh, unless it's late or early season, then it's, you know, evening sits. But um, it's been very effective. Very effective. That's awesome. So yesterday, Brad, you uh, shared a really awesome and unique story about turkey hunting. And I feel like our flatlanders would also very much enjoy hearing that story if you want to share it again. Yeah, so we're so where we turkey hunted this morning is a place that I, I've turkey hunted forever. Um, shop, my, I actually watched my brother shoot his first turkey there. Um, it's just that that whole river bottom holds a special place in my heart for sure. But um, one one morning, my dad and I were turkey hunting, and we had a gobbler. It was kind of late morning. We, we'd kind of struck out on some birds, and we, we got on another one. And, and he was just working down a, a field edge and a, and a bobcat jumped right out of a tree and killed him, not a hundred yards in front of us. So what we thought was a sure deal became a sure deal for that bobcat. That was so awesome. It, yeah. The interesting thing was to me, like it, there was no, hardly any fight. That bobcat had the turkey killed in probably less than 10 seconds. Oh, wow. Like, I'm talking no flopping, no nothing, dead in 10 seconds. It was, it was crazy. Did the bobcat then drag the carcass or did it kind of like open it up right there in front of you no he started he started eating on its neck because i remember we walked up there to like we knew what we saw but we wanted to like verify what we saw kind of deal um and unfortunately it's before cell phone you know videos were were a thing so we didn't get a video of that but we walked up there and it was amazing how much that bobcat was eating out of that you know eating that turkey in just the few minutes it took oh wow that's amazing well we've heard and seen a lot of wildlife since we've been out here we uh Got to hear a pretty healthy population of coyotes last night while we were camping, so that was fun. Yep. Kept yeah. me up. <laughs> we heard barred owls. Mm-hmm. I uh, just heard an upland sandpiper. Nice. Yep. Yeah, when we're not um, actively hunting, we're actively birding or wildlife watching in some capacity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to uh, be uploading a list to eBird <laughs> of this morning's hunt. And lots of does. A ton yeah, of does. Yeah, so many does. Turkey vultures. <laughs> just add that to the list. Yeah. Seeing yeah. them right now. Oh, maybe they're queuing in on your carcass here in the truck. You guys stay away. <laughs> They've got the best sense of smell. We tried so hard. We worked really hard to try to find some morels, and unfortunately, we didn't pull that off. We found a shed and a deadhead, which was kind of cool to find, but no morels. Lindsay did identify plenty of other fungus for us, though, so that was fun. Yeah. And no ticks. No ticks. I didn't get any Impressive. ticks. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's impressive because I went mushroom hunting last week, and I told you guys earlier, I had I think I had 13 ticks on me. Yeah, I was shocked. I didn't put bug spray on before we went looking either. I just, I had my pants sucked into my boots, but I never saw any crawling on me or anything. Yeah. I made sure after we after we uh, roosted those birds last night to spray all my clothes down with permethrin just to make sure that yeah. I'm going to be tick-free this morning. Lots of poison ivy. Yeah, I was just going to say we were... In waist high poison ivy, I'm sure Sometimes I'll have it. it was I'm like, sure you'll have it. Oh, I know, I have it already. <laughs> yeah, but not Lindsay, right? I've never gotten it. Really? I've been in poison ivy a lot, and I have never gotten a rash. I don't know if it's possible not if you can blood. just like get so much poison ivy, your body, so, you know, just kind of gets used to it. But I used to get it really bad. Now I still get it, but it's just like a few little spots, and that'll be it. That's interesting. So from what I understand, and this is like the science behind it, is that your immune system gets worse as you get older. So people who weren't allergic to it when they were younger will get really severe allergic reactions when they're older. And if you, I think the way that your body reacts to it. So if you get it and you have a rash when you're younger, it like escalates it every time you get it. So it gets worse and worse with each outbreak that you get. And it only gets worse as you get older. So it's bad for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like when I was younger, I wasn't allergic. Like, I could roll in it and be fine. And now I get it. Yeah, my dad was like me. He never got it. And then he turned 40 and was like, couldn't get it off of him. So you're saying my theory is very, very wrong. I don't know. I have no idea. That's (laughs) just what I've been like. We're going to have to find a journal article to support (laughs) Yeah, We'll link it in the show notes. I I definitely know there's one that supports your body. Um not being able to fight it off as well if you've been exposed to it before. Interesting. Okay. So. I always, so hanging tree stands in August, like it's just a surefire deal. I'm getting poison ivy. Thankfully, I don't, I just, for some reason, don't get it near as bad as I used to. That's great though. Yeah. That's awesome. Brad, you've talked to us a little bit about um, your family's farming practices and how some of those ideologies may have changed generation to generation. Um, you shared some of your unique, more, maybe more modern ideas earlier. And a lot of that goes back to like the, um, oh my God, like the strip crops and stuff like that. Is that what it's called? No, filters. Oh, filters. Filter strips is what yeah, I was thinking okay. of. But can you tell us maybe about some of those other land management practices in a little bit more detail and how those might differ from uh, what was historically done in the area? So, so historically, it was, you know, they filmed um, from tree row to tree row here uh, and all full conventional tillage. Um, nobody no-tilled. Um, so now you're seeing, you know, we have filter strips on our farms, not all the farms. Um, I've actually incorporated some wetlands on our farms to help, you know, slow down water that's, you know, coming off the fields um, to prevent some erosion. Uh, and then I plant corn in those and flood them which hunt ducks out of them. So it works out for everybody. Oh, perfect. Um, but no, so we're, we're go- you know, we're experimenting with cover crops to help with, you know, erosion problems. And, and we'll, when we do cover crops, it'll be a no-till program. Um, so hopefully we can, we can be good, con- you know, stewards of land, conservationists, and, and still make a, a living. I love that. That's fantastic to hear. That's awesome. So maybe we should transition over into the nitty gritty details of Lindsay's hunt. Let's do okay. it. <laughs> Set us up. First of all, all three of us fell asleep at least once. <laughs> yeah. You've got two. You've got two in a blind. Right. I mean, come on. You're just so comfy. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I was the last of the three of us to fall asleep because it was Laura, Tana, and myself in a blind. And then... Brad and the landowner went a blind a little further down from us, and I had just dozed off, and all of a sudden I hear Laura say, 
is that a gobble? And then Tana gasps, and then I jolt awake. And uh, sure enough, Laura had spotted a, uh, a really just beautiful Tom coming around um, a corner and only she could see it, I couldn't see it yet. And uh, I had to rely on Tana and Laura to keep me updated on where it was and what it was doing before it came into my field of vision. And it was, it was perfect. I think you guys described it as being, he just like booked it in and I don't, yeah. this is my first turkey hunt, so I didn't know if that was normal or not. Could, do you guys want to explain a bit more? Yeah, well, realistically, we were kind of a little bit, we were starting to get discouraged because we thought we knew exactly where they were. Brad kind of showed us the other night where they went out to roost. And so I expected birds, like first light, that we would at least start hearing gobbles. And so come like eight o'clock or so, I'm like, wow, where are these birds at? Are we going to have to wait till they circle back around closer to 1030 or 11? And so Brad's calling in the blind next to us and we start to hear that gobble in the background. And once he comes in, he comes in hot. And so I started, um, shout out to assistant secretary of KDWPT, Mike Miller for the awesome <laughs> box call that he loaned me. But uh, I started trying to call in too, which I'm a little bit timid about my call still. I'm still working on it, but. Uh, I would like to make note, he gobbled every time you hit that box. Call. I was yeah, so excited it was, about it was that. Every time. So, so good. But I honestly think I could have yelled gobble gobble and he would have come in. <laughs> Once he saw those, uh, the decoys sitting out in front of our blind, he was coming in no matter what. And like Lindsay said, he was, booking it. He was on a mission. He was puffed up. He was kind of strutty. But he pretty much beelined it to the birds. And uh, yeah. as Lindsay said, once he got there, she knew exactly what to do. Her instincts kind of kicked in. Yeah. I, since this was my first turkey hunt, I, I wasn't really sure where to shoot the bird. So I was picking Laura and Tana's brains this morning at 530 on our way to the spot. And uh, Laura said, once you see it, like you'll just know what to do. And that's exactly what happened. I, I didn't hesitate. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew where to shoot the bird. I did wait as long as I could, or as long as <laughs> felt normal for it, for this Tom to get out from behind a decoy so I didn't blow that up. <laughs> but yeah, it was a great shot. He just dropped right there, and it was it was a done deal. It's so, perfect. Yep. Yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful perfect bird. morning. It went was down a, quickly. I'm hooked, you guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys should have seen Lindsay. She was grinning ear to ear and shaking like an absolute weed. <laughs> well, Brad, you said you're not even going to take a turkey this year. You just, but you like to go. You yeah. like to take people. I, I love I love turkey hunting because that is that that's the first you know big game that I ever hunted, and that, so I will take anybody turkey hunting that wants to go. Um, it, it, I mean, there's nothing prettier. Like, I, I wish you could have saw that bird come in a little further than you did. But when they come in strutting and gobbling in the sunshine like that, it's just, it can't, it doesn't get much better. And then to see see the reaction after you play the first turkey, like, that's awesome. Was, it, yeah. It's worth every bit. Yeah, we'll make sure to share some photos with our, our listeners. I think we all had a, we had a group hug in the blind. We did. And then we busted <laughs> we did. out. And went I and about the teared up. Yeah, and <laughs> once he was shaking, like, it was awesome. It was. Just adrenaline. I, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but. So, you know, we saw those birds roost last night. I thought, okay, this is pretty much a done deal. We'll be at the cafe eating breakfast by like 7.30. <laughs> and like I, I told my wife last night, and I'm like, you know, got, you know, roosted is roasted this, you know, what they say for turkeys. Uh -huh. And I'm like, this is going to be good. And then no gobbles this morning. I'm like, and then we had the hens come down. This is, this is not good. Like what, what happened? Like what happened between watching them go to, you know, go to roost and then coming in this morning and then. I'd switched to a, a aluminum pot call that was a little bit louder, and he 
sounded off there about eight o'clock. I, I don't know. It was maybe what three minutes from the time or four minutes from the time he gobbled to the time he came in. It felt yeah. a lot longer. It was like time had slowed down for me. Like I could process what was happening. It seemed like someone hit fast forward from my perspective. Oh, yeah. Because like, normally they, like, they like meander and take their time yeah. and stop and display. But it, he just. It was definitely my adrenaline. It was like <laughs> everything slowed down around me. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking to Mark Merle, who's the new executive director of the Kansas Wildscape Foundation, about turkey hunting the other day. And he basically said, like, once a turkey, like, you know when the turkey's going to come in and when that's going to be your bird. He's like, basically, the turkey makes a decision that it's coming in and, like, it all happens that way. It's like, if the birds don't come in, that's not the right bird. The right one will come right in and you'll know. Yeah. Hmm. There was no hesitation from him this morning no, no there well, wasn't he knew as, as soon as i could see him rick and i were sitting in the blind and i watched him come around the point and like he saw the decoys it was game over it was done yeah <laughs> brad we had such a fun time today and uh Lindsay's still grinning ear to ear i'm uh i'm really curious what went into your day because for us it was fairly straightforward i mean we got to show up and hunt and it was wonderful and learn about the land but for you there was more planning involved so can you tell us maybe more about what that process looked like or when you're trying to mentor someone on a turkey hunt, what's involved with that? So I'm typically a kind of a run and gun turkey hunter, um, but and I, and I don't use blinds just because I don't like to be trapped. Um, this way, if the bird's on the other side of the field, I can just grab my stuff and, and get over there. But I think when mentoring, especially new hunters, blinds are great, like you can, you can, cause it's easier, closer together. You can have a conversation in the blind, talk about what's going on and why you're doing the things that you do. And, and you know, the, the pop-up blinds have really changed that. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes new hunters don't sit, you know, as still as maybe they should. <laughs> so, so you can have, not everybody respects the turkey's eye, um, cause they will pick you off in no time. It's amazing that they don't, they don't mind a pop-up blind, but if you move your gun too much when you're sitting next to a tree, they're, you know, they're gone. So I'm a huge fan of those, um, and just using good decoys so that when they commit, you know, you, you get, you, you hold them there a little bit longer. So it's not like a turkey comes in and then shies off, you know, too quick. So using better decoys, I think really helps hold that bird's attention a little longer. Yeah. Well, and I liked that. So we're kind of, Lindsay, Tana, and I are still kind of not as confident with our calling. And so it was nice that you called Brad and then we could kind of like take that as our lead. And then Tana was able to call. And so we learned a lot from it, but also got to practice. Yeah, I waited cool. to call until it was pretty much a done deal just so I would uh, look good no matter what. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we were filming that, it would have been perfect. Literally, yeah. the time you called, he gobbled. He it was perfect. awesome. Well, one of the great things, too, about hunting out of a blind, especially for a new hunter, is that you don't need a lot of expensive camo. I mean, throw on a dark-colored yeah. sweatshirt and, like, a dark neck gaiter or something, and uh, you really will blend into kind of the shadows of the blind, which I think is a really great and intriguing aspect of this for a new hunter that maybe can't afford to go out and buy all new hunting gear. Absolutely. I mean, hunting can be it can be a, as expensive as you want it to be, so it's nice to be able to be able to cut some costs, especially with somebody that, you know, isn't sure that, it's what they want to do, but they want to go, do want to go try it, but it may not be a lifelong endeavor for them. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been so great, not only getting to learn about the hunt itself, but also about the process that goes into taking somebody new. So hopefully each of us gets the opportunity to take someone new with us and kind of pass that, pass that turkey hunting opportunity on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I do want to briefly mention that I tried two new things today. Not only did I turkey hunt, but I also tagged something electronically. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Your mobile app. At K- yeah. The KS Hunt Fish app. It was so easy. When I, when I deer hunt and I have a paper tag, it's like, okay, I have to cut this part so I can strap it on there and make sure it doesn't fall off and it's really tight, but it's like covered in blood. And mm-hmm. this was so easy. I just punched a couple of things in, like picked out the county and the region that it was in, took a picture and it was done. And it like geotags your location so it knows where you did it. And uh, there's a confirmation number. So if you get stopped by a game warden, it's right there on your phone. And it's right there with your license and your hunter safety uh, certification. It's so easy. And I probably won't do it any other way after this, honestly. Did you, let me ask, did you have to have service to do that? I had really, really poor service. So I could like upload the photo and everything. I did get an error message a couple of times, but after I kept, after I hit um, submit, like the third time it went through and I, I still had really poor service. Um, okay. But yeah, I think Tana was telling me that you don't need service. It'll still like tag your location and everything. Nice. So if it doesn't get submitted, you still have that if you do get stopped. Yeah, it'll like store and upload the content, I'm pretty sure. And then once you get into an area with signal, like all the official submission will go through, but it'll at least store it so that you're legal, um, is my understanding. But what's cool about that too, from a you know KDWPT perspective, is that it really improves our harvest reporting. Yeah. So because we have people just immediately, uh, you know, you had to indicate the sex of your bird. And where you took it, like you said. And so, like, we that's data that we immediately have access to, which is really great and helps us better understand our turkey populations and make management decisions. So it's a great, great way to be involved and um, an opportunity to utilize some new technology. You know what I like about it is how many times have you got your wallet when mm-hmm. you go turkey hunting, but you never forget your phone? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't forget your phone you when don't. you're hunting. So, I mean, just anymore, that's how society is today. You never forget your phone. You might forget everything else, but yeah. you're going to have your phone on you. We literally had to come back to our campsite so I could get my wallet so we could go get breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Case well, point. It's perfect, too, because, you know, if you are so fortunate to harvest an animal, um, most people like to take a nice, respectful photo of the beautiful animal that they were able to harvest. And so that's part of the reporting in the app. And so it's always convenient, too, that you're like, oh, I didn't take a photo intentionally, but I always have that photo. And so I can go ahead and upload that as part of the reporting. Perfect. Yep. I'm sure we get, I don't know, I've never actually seen the data that comes in from the app, but I'm sure we have a lot of awesome, like, smiling face pictures of people with their harvest. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Right? I wonder if we could utilize that somewhere. Yeah. I thought about uploading see. that one that I that you guys took of me on my phone. And uh, I was like, no, I've got to get this beard in it. <laughs> so I took an up close picture. a nice picture. beard. <laughs> Big, long beard, yeah. Very cool. So now Lindsay's got some meat for her freezer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which what was your freezer running low, or were you? It's empty right now. We okay. moved into a new place and we haven't filled it up. So this is the first. This is going to be the first. Game. The first food that we put in that freezer is game that I harvested myself with the help of you amazing people. So very awesome. nice. Yes. Very cool. Well, I think with that, thank you so much, Brad. It was great meeting you and and um, having you share your knowledge with us. That was great. We learned a lot. Great yeah. having you guys down. Glad uh, Rick set it all up. Yeah, we'll have to come back sometime. Yes. Absolutely. Come back for some of those does. Take you fishing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll help you yeah, with the Yeah, take you bow fishing. That's what we need to do. Get I your hook. Good trait. Help you buy a boat. Oh, man. See you there later. Okay. <laughs> Bye. We're, we're going to go clean this bird. Yeah. Happy hunting, everyone. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org.
And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.